Welcome back, everybody, to the Brubble Podcast, you know, a podcast exploring young voices and perspectives from in and around the Brussels bubble. And today is a special day. The year is almost ending. It's a month out from the end of the year, the last day of November, and people at this time of the year always make their top 10 lists, which is a, a great fun practice, and it's especially fun when you look at the top 10 news stories of the year that was. Um, so this is going to be a bit more of a serious topic exploring, but a serious topic with some conversation debate around it. And as always, I'm joined by some, I'd say, very serious men around me, Nikos and Jao. Do you want to introduce yourselves very quickly? Yes. So I work in the bubble, in the European uh, Commission. I'm uh, 26 years old. I come from Greece. Uh, very happy to be back. Thanks again for, for the invite. But here I'm very happy to just share my own personal uh, opinions and just discuss with friends about topics that interest us and interest Europe and, and the world. You know, I'm, I'm super happy to have you guys back here too because I, I try to do every so often one of these episodes where we, you know, take a more sporadic look uh, at, at these pressing issues we see around us and, you know, you two are great. Typically, Julian uh, Hoez would also be joining us here. He might join halfway through, but we have his thoughts anyways. Uh, myself, I'm Simon Van Hoeven. I, I work in the Brussels bubble as well uh, for one of our big tech companies around here. Uh, one of the good ones, I would say, personally, but I'm also getting paid to say that. So, yeah. But, yeah, uh, and I'm happy to share my perspectives as well. Um, and also, finally, last but not least, somebody who we're very happy to see back on his feet around here. Pretty much on my feet again, yes. <laughs> thank you so much. It's great thing for me for being back here with you guys. Um, I've been missing this type of activities. My name is João, uh, João Ponch. I work also for the European Commission. I work for DigiGrow and I deal mainly with internal market affairs, more specifically with barriers to the internal market. I'm really, really excited about this discussion because making top 10 lists, especially about such interesting topics like the ones that we have here today, it will be super, super fun. Stay engaged. And we know it'll be fun because we did this last year as well. And as a special surprise, should I pull up what we talked about last year? Um, so, so just, you know, just kick off the conversation. It's been like two minutes on this. Our top ten of last year, number one, Russia-Ukraine war, then energy security, then inflation, uh, NATO enlargement at four, food security at five, which I didn't even look at this year, conference on the future of Europe at six, U.S. midterms at seven, the trend of polarization, number eight, a great shout by us, I would say, uh, number nine, hungry rule of law, funding cuts, and 10, EU enlargement. Looking at 2022's list, any thoughts, any reflections from the last few months we've seen around us? Did we hit the mark? I, I think with these kind of lists, it's, there's always a degree of hit and miss, but I would say to a very large extent, uh, there were a lot of uh, a lot of hits. Russia-Ukraine war is still as prevalent. Energy security and just the entire climate agenda continues to be at the forefront of European discussion. Inflation as well, the cost of living crisis for Europeans everywhere, uh, as well as in the United States and Canada. NATO enlargement, EU enlargement as well, uh, and just I think what what we've severely underestimated is the trend of polarization. Mm. And I, I think what what I can say about that is there's always things you know that you know, that you know that you don't know, and that things that you don't know that you don't know. And I think one <laughs> of those things was um, the unexpected regional wars that uh, have started in uh, 2023 that have augmented and amplified that trend even further. And, and I think if we look at the Gallup's 
for the for elections everywhere in Europe, but especially for European elections, we see that this is a constant uh, variable that we have to account for. Paralleling that mm-hmm. ancient Greek wisdom of your forefathers, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I guess, and I guess, it's going to be very interesting for us to also analyze our list from the last year and try to understand which are the troubles or the, or the issues that remain, and uh, will it, will they change order or not? Mm-hmm. Are they part of a bigger picture? So this is something that we should we will find out. Yeah, because it was also really interesting to see some really specific nods we gave it to last year, and it's. For me, it's interesting to see how some of these trends have carried on, but in different directions. So, for instance, Conference on the Future of Europe, it wasn't really on any of our lips this year, but a lot of the ideas it brought up were seen kind of formulating the real issues that Such have, as? have weight around us. I, I think just the ongoing debate about representation and, and about democracy and uh, the, the powers of the member states within the European Commission, especially, you know, foreign policy mechanisms and stuff like that. But uh, I guess... Given a quick look at 2022, we've got to look to what was the future this year, 2023. So the way we've done this, I've gathered 25 of the top, uh, the top stories and themes from around the year, and I've given, you know, Zhao and Nikos at least a, a good amount of time to prepare, which they definitely took advantage of. Um, uh, but, but yeah, I, I, I captured a lot of the trends, but uh, some of us have taken some liberties of rewriting some of these trends as well. Um, but what we're going to do is from number one to number ten, we're going to tell you first what we thought individually the top 10 trends were, one being most important, 10 being you know, important, but 10th and most important. And then we're going to collectively try to come together and make this 1 to 10 list again, the official Brubble podcast, you know, top 10 of 2023. Let's go. Yes. Would you like to start, Zhao? Uh, me. With, with, with your, uh, me. Because uh, it, it's definitely... The uh, person who created all the chaos. Yes. Sorry for that. Up and down. Would you like to go through really quickly? Maybe, maybe just maybe just list off your list. Don't yeah. go too much into depth in your thinking. We'll get to that later. Okay. Uh, uh, just going to explain something. I tried to do an, an exercise of merging some of the topics together because I do believe that some of them, are, most of them, are important. But it become even more important when you combine them and have a greater picture of the situation. And this is something that can lead us to some clues for the future. So uh, starting from the tenth place. I I chose the U.S. midterms, then Brazil versus Argentina, uh, which I see this in the perspective of uh, a political clash of ideas, and uh, both economically and socially, and uh, as well as in international affairs. The French pension reform, in seventh place, NATO enlargement, in sixth place, China and the world, in fifth place, the AI Act, in fourth place, Africa's cues. In third place, the Israel-Hamas conflict. In the second, 2024 EU elections prelude. And first place, economy and climate. Yeah, and it, I remember when you were doing it, you were talking to me, and you were saying, it's, it's kind of hard to place all these themes together. And I think this tells, like when I was creating this as well, I had the idea that this year, instead of there being huge headlines, which there were, there was a lot of interconnected, you know, undercurrents, which really pushed forth a lot of events we saw. I guess kind of what you were hinting at, Nikos. Mm-hmm. And talking about that hinting at, would you like me to introduce your quick list, or should I go first? Yeah, you know what, why don't you go first, because I have <laughs> uh, list. <laughs> there we go, there we go. So, so my list, uh, I'll go from bottom up again. Tenth place, I had the 2024 EU elections prelude. A bit late in the year, this really caught momentum, but late enough to put on to tenth, although this is very closely combated with 
uh, nuclear energy, which unfortunately didn't make the cut, but might be, if you guys argue. Number ninth, Africa's coups. Eighth, Israel-Hamas conflict. Seventh, China and the world. Sixth, Ukraine reconstruction and EU enlargement. Fifth, the AI Act and other international AI regulatory approaches. Um, fourth, NATO enlargement. Third, inflation and cost of living. Second, the right-wing wave. And first, sadly again, the Russia-Ukraine war. Um, so a bit of a similar top few to last year, but I think the major trends have caught forward. Should we hear from Julian first, or are you ready to go? Uh, let's do Julian, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so Julian is our very, um, how would we call him, French opinionated friend. Uh, he runs the, the, the French dispatch of fire, I wouldn't say mm-hmm. fiery, an authoritative newsletter giving you the top headlines from around France and international affairs. Um, so he's always been our bit of a French correspondent, but he has great knowledge of the EU affairs. Do you think I did him justice there? You, you absolutely did. I'm just looking at the list in uh, <laughs> complete shock and awe that the French pe- pension reform is not... Oh, best. yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, well, quickly listing off his list for the audio listeners. And if you're listening on audio, you can also watch us on YouTube um, and subscribe there as well, please. Uh, so Spotify. Yes, and Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts as well. Um, we are everywhere. Yes. Uh, taking over. Tenth, uh, speaking about taking over, entering the EU, according to Julian, was Croatia, which he thought was tenth in importance. Ninth, uh, Julian's pick was Ukraine reconstruction and EU enlargement. Eighth was specifically the Polish elections. Uh, seventh was the 2024 elections prelude. Um, sixth was in the, the Inflation Reduction Act and the Green Industrial Plan, which I think I was tempted to include as well when I saw this pick. I think it's an underrated pick as it was last year when we created a list as well. Fifth, the Israel-Hamas conflict. Fourth, the AI Act. Third, the inflation and cost of living crisis, as some would call it. Second, the right-wing wave. And first, the Russia-Ukraine war. An interesting little mixture very of interesting, ideas. Very Eurocentric, and, and I like his, uh, his perspective, but I guess... But we are sitting in Brussels, right? We, we do have a bias, but I, I think he really, really took the... The, the very strong uh, European perspective, and it's a pity he's not here to uh, uh, to defend it because there's some great picks. I agree, a lot of yeah. underrated stuff. And if there's a kind of some kind of deal breaker, I'll kind of push his voice into here. Um, but we'll see how it goes, or we'll give him a call. You know, yeah. <laughs> interrupt his important <laughs> meeting he had today. Um, finally, Nikos, somebody uh, you can't get it, keep getting away with it. Um, your very fought out list. Yes, indeed, uh, <laughs> and that's not a diss, by the way. Um, so. I'm actually going to start from the top and make my way to the bottom because that's how my mental uh, thought process went. So I'm going to go number one with inflation and the cost of living. Number two, migration. Number three, Russia-Ukraine war. Uh, Number four, uh, the conflict between Israel and Hamas. Uh, Number five, uh, the U.S. Republicans and generally the internal affairs of the U.S. Um, Number six, Russia. Number seven, China. Number eight, climate, and I would add to this also sort of in parenthesis, energy. Um, number nine, we've put Nagorno-Karabakh, but in, uh, in, in my head it's just relations, uh, geopolitical relations between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Um, and the tenth um, is the 2024 EU election prelude, and the only reason I started from top to bottom um, is because I think all these topics from one through nine uh, reflect very importantly on the tenth, so I think that mm. sort of encapsulates all the other topics. Fair enough. I, I like how you kind of wrapped up with a bow. 
as we go into our own list, I see there's less agreement than last year. Because last year, we all had the same number one. We had practically the same number two. It was only the bottom half that was kind of conflated. Whereas this year, my number one isn't even represented in Zhao's list. What's True. up with that? True. Um, Which was the Russian-Ukraine war. It's not that I, that I not, do not consider it important. I just thought that it became something that is more or less still present that I think I sh- we should like that I should like place it, uh, give priority to other stuff. And that with uh, the other stuff that I placed there, I can even mention what is happening in, uh, in Russia, as we are mm-hmm. going to see afterwards. So, so how because there is a lot, sorry, there is a lot yeah. of Russian influence on the stuff right. that I'm going to mention. Right, right. Because it was kind of hard, like I was saying, to take the themes away from the events, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, look at the events only and not at the larger themes this year. But how do you want to approach this list agreement? Should we look at what we all have on the list first and then kind of pick away? Or is there things you will die on a hill to get on there? Let's constru- I suggest for us to construct it uh, from bottom up. But not every list, because we unfortunately don't have time for, uh, mm. for that. I think we can, we can grab some big, big headlines. Let, let's do this. Let's go around the table and each suggest one we really key to see in there. All, the, all let's agree on uh, on on a few yep. a few of them because I th- there are some stuff that uh, we have but in our list and we can agree the position already. Let, let's just go around the table because and then knock off the easy ones that we think there will be agreement. So okay, starting you, Nikos, what has to be in there for you? Uh, how many? One, two, three. J- just one, and then we'll go around like that. Um, I'm gonna go with migration. Because mm, this is oh, this is an interesting shout because I didn't personally put in migration. I kind of supplemented it the right-wing wave, right? And you did kind of similar. I think Julian did similarly as well. Why did you go for migration overwards? Because you could argue the right-wing wave also, you know, encompasses ideas of, you know, frustration of cost of living, frustration of, you know, EU, you know, bureaucracy and stuff like that, government spending, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Why migration specifically? No, I, I, I've been saying this uh, for a while now that migration is uh, is a dark horse, uh, and a Trojan horse in a way. Topic, topic, mm-hmm. in uh, in terms of um, um, of of the EU, because uh, um, d- despite the fact that um, m- migration number one is a normal part of of history, and number two in Europe especially, it's it's necessary. Uh, the way, unfortunately, that uh, the current situation is unfolding, given the fact that we ha- have not yet agreed on a common European uh, migration and asylum pact, means that um, a lot of countries are fighting on their own. Uh, some countries, w- which are countries uh, w- where m- migrants want to um, to end up in, are suffer from certain problems. Other countries that are on the front line suffer from certain others. But one thing that seems to be a trend in all of those countries is that it is pushing the electorate uh, right wing. And that's undeniable. If you look at uh, the big coalition partners across Europe, minor coalition partners uh, across European governments, entire European governments that are that are now moving um, more and more right wing, the more center right flirting with with the more right and and the more uh, edges of the ideological spectrum so as because they see a portion of their vote being eaten out by this um so this problem will only become more and more prevalent as we enter the european elections and especially because if you follow elections all across 
European states, not just member states, uh, the EU27, the but across other European countries as well that are not EU members, but for instance, maybe NATO members, you see that um, th this, this issue is, is coming again and again and again. And unfortunately, if we don't treat it with, number one, the attention that it requires, and I think number two, the seriousness of getting together and saying, look, we need to find common ground here, because if we don't and we're all on our own, this will only continue to get, uh, to get worse. And, and for that reason, I think I, uh, it is a topic that simply cannot be ignored. I think you make great points there. I'll give it to you in a second, Zhao. But my argument would be here. I like the fact that the right-wing wave encompasses that trend, but I also feel like it also encompasses other trends which are equally important to this, this trend. Uh, stuff like uh, increasing polarization, which we had on the list last year. I didn't really represent properly here, but also inflation, cost of living. Because I feel if we put migration on here, we automatically must also put on inflation and cost of living. We absolutely have yeah. to, and they're two separate okay. issues. I think... And we can't them summarize them as a right-wing wave. No, of course not, because okay. also I, I don't think there is... On migration, there is a strong degree of, of agreement that uh, amongst a, a lot of right-wing movements in Europe that there needs to be uh, a stronger European border. But on, on inflation and cost of living, there are a lot of different ideas being floated. So I think treating them as uniform diminishes their importance, and Fair they're enough. both important. I think that's a good way to really get around the right-wing wave issue here. Zhao, thoughts? And where would you rank them? I'm going to give you well, the honor. Or, well, just a, l a little yeah. bit of, um, of a note on what Nico said. I agree with the, with the importance of the migration, although I had a little bit of a different exercise because, as Nico's mentioned, he referred migration and European elections. We understand that not only on the context of a major uh, European Parliament elections, but on elections in Europe as a general, migration is a huge topic. And it has been the fault of sometimes some of the governments um, falling. And most of the coalition, as Nikos was mentioning, they have to have in mind how they are going to address, and most likely in a more restrictive way, the migration issue. So what I mean is, I give a lot of importance to the e 2024 EU prelude because it merges together two of the important topics. I don't want to take uh, the importance from them, but it's a fact. Migration and right-wing waves are connected mm -hmm. a lot, and it will shape the way that the European elections, both nationally and in European Parliament as a whole, will take place next year. And so I believe that we could, in a way, try to merge them and encompass them in the in the EU elections prelude. I do think that is an argument, though, what Nikos was saying earlier, to give them their separate, you know, kind of run for the money. Because I think it'll have larger implications than just the EU elections. As you were hinting yourself, even a lot of domestic elections, especially in the year past, which is what we're looking at, have been really influenced by these things. Like, look at the Dutch election, which just mm -hmm. wrapped up. That was really based off these two key factors. The Swedes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Even the Italians. Even the French elections. The Greeks. I mean, no, no, but the, ri the, the thing is, election is the way that we express in mm -hmm. a democratic system. Yeah. So, and if uh, people are perceiving in a way that migration, or better, better saying, the way that currently we are dealing with migration, it has been an issue. Mm -hmm. So I think it should be included uh, in the European prelude 
And we also can make an argument for the for being connected with the right-wing wave. I would personally include these two separately as well as the EU elections prelude. Because for me, the EU elections prelude kind of summarizes more the political maneuvering going on ahead of the elections in this calendar year. Because I don't want to look a bit too far ahead because we are reflecting on 2023. Mm-hmm. So for me, the EU elections prelude is more the merry-go-round of the... The, the recently <coughs> departed center-right and left-leaning leaders trying to get their big jobs in Brussels, von der Leyen clinging on wherever she can, Stoltenberg, all the little merry-go-round of leaders there. So I, I think great points. I would personally think, and I'm going to bring in Julian's voice, which isn't present, I think we would kind of keep these two on the list. Because you've been overruled, Zhao. Where would you place these two? I'll give you the honor of that. <laughs> okay, the inflation cost act and the migration? Yeah. Okay. Uh, again, I, I try to merge inflation costs with an, with other topics because they are connected with cheating other topics. Is what I call that. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not cheating. It's actually the truth. But, but where would you place this in their current bracket right here? I mean, that's a difficult. That's no, difficult to say. I mean, uh, you are you are you You're are asking man. you are asking me to dismantle everything that I did. Um, <laughs> basically, is that it? To step on his values, actually. Uh, no, it's pretty much like. A I, I'm gonna place them one and two, a two and three right now. And and we can move them around unless we have. Okay. Are, are you okay with this? I, I am, of course, of course. Like in my opinion, I just had them both one step up. I really don't see right now what's, uh, what's uh, on, a on the topic issue, in Europe. My number one and Julian's number one as well is the Russian-Ukraine war. Do we think it deserves a place on this list in the top four? An argument can certainly be uh, be made. Because uh, I think it's been the dominant, especially in the first half of the year, it was all about the developments, the, the cold winter, you know, the Battle of Bakhmuts, mm-hmm. all the developments kind of being frozen over and everybody waiting for the June offensive, which came, but not to the big bang we expected. And then coupled in the trends of, you know, support to Russia, or support to Ukraine, apologies, uh, support to Ukraine uh, kind of diminishing a lot of the political, political rhetoric. I mean, I know Europe's committed to being strong on that front. But we see our American allies being a bit more, you know, mm-hmm. light-footed in their approach here. I think it's been a dominant political discourse that's been reverberating, and I think it has to be in the top three, personally, mm-hmm. if not number one. I mean, the more you, the more you individualize the, um, the topics, the easier it becomes for Russia and Ukraine to be on the top one, because it encompasses most of the things or most of the issues that we are dealing right now. Um, the thing is, okay, if you want to, to scale them down, um, inflation, if we are looking carefully, inflation and cost of living and migration are perhaps two of the hottest topics if we are going to elections nowadays. Right. That's how the governments are going to be judged, mostly. Mm-hmm. But we're in 2023. We're still in 2023. Okay. Even with the elections that yeah. we had during this year. I would agree. I mean, I if you go, for instance, for the Finnish elections or right. the Swedes or Sweden, I mean... You, you see that those were, especially migration, was a core issue. Uh, and this, and we can understand also that this is going to play a role next year. Mm-hmm. It can potentially be, a, uh, for those remaining in, in power that do not address the issues, it can be like a yellow card in the European elections. Uh, 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 so, um, I think what I'm getting at, and correct me if I'm 
jumping the gun here, Nikos, and I'll let you do your little Ukraine blurb. Because in the past episodes, <laughs> you've always had your five minutes of rallying support for Ukraine. So if you want, if you want to keep it uh, separated like that, I would have to say that perhaps the, the order that you are thinking about is the correct one for me. So I'll put inflation and cost of living right now tentatively at number one, and migration at number two. I, unexpected for me, but I, I think I approve. And then I'm moving up Russia-Ukraine war to number three. Nikos, mm-hmm. thoughts on how this progressed throughout the year? <laughs> all right. First of all, Slava Ukraina. We will n- never stop until uh, supporting Ukraine until all of the Ukrainian territory is liberated. Um, that being said, as we look at the entirety of 2023, I, I think putting, for instance, R- Russia-Ukraine war as the top topic would be too Brussels-centric. Mm. Think a little bit about the average, not the average voter, the average person in Europe right now. What are their most uh, pressing concerns? And I don't mean what are their most pressing concerns on Twitter slash X or Instagram. I mean, what are their most important problems? Number one, their most important problems are how are they going to meet, uh, uh, make ends meet for the um, for the month? How are they going to pay for the bills? How will they keep up with the supermarket uh, shopping list, which just keeps getting inflated and inflated and inflated week in, week out, month in, month out? Um, so in that extent, obviously, the Russia-Ukraine war um, has, uh, um, has decreased in terms of the prevalence um, in, in the state of thinking, I think, of an average European citizen. That being said, we must not forget that there is still an ongoing war on European soil and and on a country that the Commission recommended should start accession negotiations. So it, it could, uh, uh, could be that the Council grants it in December. So we're talking about the country that is negotiating to become a member of the EU that is currently in a state of full-on war. Um, a, a lot of things about the because we put the, the label that it's the Russia-Ukraine war, but there is so many things to it. You've put Ukraine reconstruction as a separate topic, but um, it's not because what I what are we trying to reconstruct here? We're trying to reconstruct a country, uh, Ukraine, that's essentially uh, been carpet bombed by by another country for for the whim of only one one mad dictator, nothing else. That's that's literally it. Um, and, and young people on both sides, I might add, are, are, are needlessly dying, but uh, th- that's what makes the fight of, of U- Ukrainian civilians and the armed forces so important. But w- we must also think um, that the war has entered a stalemate, and that's not good for, for public support. The offensive, I think people had too high expectations, mm-hmm. and I remember the Ukrainian military leaders adjusting them because they don't have air superiority. They unfortunately don't have um, the, the, the willingness, number one, and the stupidity to just throw wave after wave after wave of human lives uh, across bunkers and across walls and across fortified positions. And unfortunately, it takes time. Now, if we start talking about the nitty-gritty of the war, there are a lot of good things, a lot of good things. Places where Ukraine has made advancements on the lines that were set from the 2014 uh, conflict between Russia and Ukraine. But in terms of priority, I think, and just I, w- I want to indicate that this is the top three that I put. I agree completely with this top three for the 
from a European perspective. I didn't even notice that. I, I did. Uh, okay, I, I, I feel bad about that. I, I didn't want to give you too and much And I did not here. press. I did not press <laughs> for this. I can see you sitting back way too calmly there. Zhao, and any final thoughts on Russia Ukraine, or do you want to pivot into maybe another conflict or a series of conflicts you want to see on this list? No, one of the things that was uh, that I said, um, I don't know if it was in the in the last year's top ten, twenty twenty two top ten list, or if it was on our predictions. But uh, I refer as um, the Russian Russian Ukrainian war as something that could spill over into other type of potential conflicts. And I think in a way we are tra- we are already assisting to some of these situations because of the influence that Russia still has by its own or by sometimes is proxy members or kind of institutions like Wagner that have influence in other regions of the world and uh, that are creating turmoil and undermining um, the, the lives of people of civilians there, but of course undermining afterwards the lives of uh, civilians in uh, the European Union, for instance. Uh, hot topic still. I mean, um, as Nico said, and I make his words mine, uh, we still should keep uh, keep up and, um, and so continue supporting Ukraine. The thing that we need to think about last year, from last year is, are we actually doing enough? And uh, in some cases, some of the so-proclaimed Ukrainian allies, although they never abandoned them, but they might have found in some other conflicts a way to, let's say, not provide enough or prioritize other type of conflicts rather than Ukraine. And we are are going to speak of one uh, which uh, I think it could make very easily, um, very easy like top five, top four, which I would uh, would speak about the Israeli uh, Hamas conflict. Let's make the pivot. I think that's uh, that's uh, a perfect uh, point to to do it. Uh, this was the unknown unknown. I think of 2023. No one expected this because we did have last year uh, a, a localized and sort of short but intense uh, conflict between the the two sides. But um, this time it exploded into a full-blown war. It, I, yep. I could agree, but I do feel like any year could have been the year of Israel-Hamas conflict. I the w- sorry. I know, I, I was yeah. going to say, but actually I don't agree. I, think, ahead, I, th- yeah. I think this is actually a good year because it's the, fifth, it's the 50th anniversary and actually it happened more or less in the same days as the Yom Kippur War. Fair enough. So see what I perceived as an impetus for this was more of the Israeli relations this, yeah. with Saudi this, Arabia, etc. Yeah, but this, yeah, exactly. This might just be, I mean, just a unhappy coincidence, because mm. one one of the things that uh, the Israeli Hamas conflict, I think it has been like very overshadowed, is what lies deep within this conflict this time around. Mm. Okay, what are the geopolitical consequences? What was at stake? what happened, uh, what this conflict is preventing from happening in that area. And just a very quick take on that. Um, There's been negotiating as far as I'm aware, even during Trump's uh, mandate as a president, a type of agreement or between the Israelis and the Saudis. And this will completely reshape the, the security and defense architecture of the region. And of course, 
the the biggest enemy of both sides is still Iran. So this triangle was also very important for this equation of this current uh, conflict. So what was at stake was Saudi Arabia could potentially being recognized Israel and Israel uh, soften its positions. Of course, like this type of negotiations will always have to have the Palestinian solution as something to be happen in the agreement. So we could have been assisting if some things could actually have been evolved to Israel softening up its position on the, on the Palestinian authority. But the thing is, Iran knew that most likely if this was coming to happen and they formed this coalition, geopolitically they will be in tatters. And also, they knew that whenever solution would have to come, the Palestinians would have to be involved. So th this thing has been work cooked out in August. I don't know if you guys uh, read the headlines ba back then. In August, things were being cooked in Syria between Iran, uh, Hamas, and other, um, and other Muslim movements in the, the Gaza Strip. And also they say that Hezbollah was also involved. And we do not, do not know, but I positively think that Russia in some way also sanctioned the situation in order for these attacks to happen. And this completely broke the architecture that was being cooked. Because nowadays with the conflict, the Saudis cannot say, hey, let's, let's be pals. You know, let money let, money. we cannot, we can, they cannot do that. And uh, so as long as this still, still remains, no architecture design and no alliance, because ultimately this was what was going to do. The U.S. was planning to make like two bilateral defense agreements, one with Saudi Arabia and one with Israel. They would not be connected, so the two countries, but in the way they would mm. through the U.S., and this would completely reshape the security in the region. So, so, so given all this, I mean, keeping an eye on the clock, you know, where do we put the Israel-Hamas conflict? Because for me personally, and I will say, I don't talk with the Israel-Hamas conflict because I don't think I can add anything constructive to debate here. What I've observed sitting here in Brussels is it reflects, from my perspective, more on the, on the poorness at times of EU foreign policy. And I think looking at other conflicts, for instance, the Gorno-Karabakh conflict, beyond the geopolitical implications, that's kind of what I see the implications for Europe as, and I think it's something interesting to point out. Regardless, where do we want to put this on the list? Because I had it nearer to seventh. I've seen some of you had it nearer to fourth. Yep. I, I just would like to make one last point Quickly, very shortly. Yeah. Um, one of the biggest implications that this conflict can actually have is exactly the same thing that it happened in 73, which is a major oil crisis. And just think about the situation. If you are t telling people that inflation and cost of living, which affects citizens and business, is already an issue, imagine what happened if the Arabic states, not wanting to join the war, used their hard instruments like their leverage on oil to force the conflict, or to force yeah. an, end, an end of the conflict, or, or to use it as kind of a sanction mechanism. Yeah, but let's this also keep this pinned in 2023 as a because I, I think we're really focusing or fixating on the importance of these topics for the year to come, which I think is great analysis. I'm really enjoying this conversation. But in the in the whole list of things that happened in 2023, where do we rank this? Nikos, I give you the honor. Four. Four? What do you think, Zhao? I agree with him. 
I would personally have kept it a little lower, but then again, I also don't have anything cons- constructed to say it's conflict, so I'll refrain. Yeah, but as a great man once said to me, you've been overruled. Mm-hmm. Great. <laughs> well, I guess that brings it to me with the, the magic mouse, which I've been holding all along. I want to quickly draw something that I saw in three of our other lists and has been on my mind a lot as somebody working in tech. The AI Act um, and all of the AI, you know, the huge bubble of noise surrounding these trends going on. Do we think that the AI Act deserves to be one of the top stories of 2023? Which I do think it does and maybe even in the top five. Nikos, and any perspectives? I would say digital regulation if, if you can uh, sort of put it under that umbrella, has it absolutely been because, okay, you, you, you have AI puncturing in a way the commercial, uh, um, the commercial landscape. And when I mean commercial, I mean just regular people, not commercial as in massive conglomerates and companies using it. So now anyone can go to chat GPT and ask them to write their, their essay for them, right? Uh, but at the same time, so you have the AI Act, but you also have the Digital Services Act. Um, you have uh, digital uh, markets. the Digital Markets Act, uh, the Code of Practice on Disinformation, right. the Foreign Interference uh, and Manipulation uh, actions that the, that the Commission and that the EU is taking. So I think this is part of a broader umbrella mm-hmm. that needs to be taken into account. What scares me the most is the rate at which, unfortunately, regulation is too slow to keep up with um, with this technology. D- do you think that there's any, because I know we speak about a lot about the Brussels effect, do you think that what we've been seeing in the last year has been reflecting well, has been reflecting good or poorly, I rephrase that poorly, has been reflecting, how has been reflecting on the EU's regulatory ambitions right now? Because with the AI Act we've been seeing is it's being stuck in the trialogues and being tossed around and people have been kind of almost surpassing it in the international, like the Hiroshima process, stuff like that. Do we think that the current wave of digital regulation is, you know, progressing well enough from the EU perspective? Or is that a question for beyond the scope of this room? I think <laughs> we don't have time for uh, Fair enough. No, for that. De- and de- please leave de- your de- perspective de- in the comments below. Definitely, but ju- yeah. just, just, just a very small take on that. I mean, we have, we, the European Union has its f- own framework of procedures on addressing regulation. And we try to do it in the the most transparent way possible, encompassing all the institutions. (laughs) And it takes time. That's the thing. And me coming from DigiGrow, so we are talking about um, innovation, uh, industry, and everything related to to, um, artificial intelligence. We need to understand that innovation in all of these things, they completely come beforehand and act faster than regulation itself. It will always be like this. The thing is what we want to achieve from from this regulation. And in this, we need to understand that there are basically two perspectives in conference. A more EU-centric value-based approach and a more market approach that our competitors have like the US and China. And if you've read Anu Bradford's new book, Digital Empire, she also argues with the third approach, the Chinese one, the yeah, more authoritarian yeah. approach. So I, I like how we're all having the same ideas. Yeah, so... Um, Sorry, still your train. No, 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 it's okay. So the, the, the thing is, is the issue with, the major issue I- with um, the AI is it is a reality, but it will depend on who will actually be able to control that reality. 
Yeah. Okay, so this is where regulation plays a role. And just to throw it a, uh, a small thing, AI is part of our lives. It's going to be even more in the future. And business nowadays are telling, well, they're a little bit fearful that too much regulation may hamper their activities, may hamper the, capaci the capacity for European business to build up on, on, um, on innovation and scaling up. And we can reach to a point where we cannot compete with American or Chinese uh, champions, yep. which means that they will dominate the market. I think that's a great segue into a different topic. But before we do that quickly, where do we put digital regulation as an umbrella bucket? Zhao, you have the last word? I have the last word. A lot of Unless responsibility. I would say five. Five? I would go for six, but it's fine. Let, let's go five and we'll see what, what comes out of it. Okay. Um, and if anybody has a copy of the Anu Bradford new book, I've been trying to snatch a free copy at all these events she's been going to, and I haven't gotten one yet. So uh, hit me up, please. I also want to quickly spotlight the Inflation Reduction Act topic, which Julian had in his top 10, uh, around the six mark, if I remember correctly. And I think this speaks a bit more towards the whole competitiveness of Europe. Because for, I've been seeing the undercurrents of a lot of debates around the policy service here in Brussels, and maybe it's not all across Europe, this conversation. It, it's, it's very much wondering how competitive is Europe in the markets nowadays. And we really saw it being brought to the forefront in March, in, in, in February, with the Inflation Reduction Act and the Green Deal Industrial Plan, you know, the whole fiasco around that. Should this be in our top ten? Should we tentatively stick it to the bottom and knock it off later? I think there, there was a period where there were a lot of intense discussions on it, um, largely because we claim in Brussels that it caught us a bit off guard. Uh, so just to, to, to comment that the Inflation Reduction Act is something that the U.S. adopted essentially to um, incentivize uh, and subsidize its own um, industry, specifically in like the more green, uh, green tech uh, area and sectors. Uh, but at the same time, I think if you look at the second half of the year, it's completely tumbled into a point where I don't remember the last time I, I heard a European politician talking about True. the G-dip, as they like to call it. Although I have to disagree on one thing. This is the clear example that this topic, read, when you read it separately, it loses a lot of importance. But when you place it on the bigger picture of uh, international uh, competition between the our two blocks, for instance, you were talking about the subsidizing of the industry and, and energy. Lately, um, a lot of, of EU politicians, even high-level EU politicians, are completely fearful of the amount of energy-intensive industries that we are losing to the US. You know, because... I because of this type of attitudes, and this will br this will mean that it will have economic impact, not only in terms of production for us, but of course in terms of jobs. Mm -hmm. Should we leave it on? I'm going to tentatively dump it at number ten because I, I do think it's an important issue, but we'll knock it off probably later on. And I do think we have to get a bit quicker of a move on if okay, we want to so finish up in the hour. I I want uh, here. I think we need to mention climate and energy. Because I think if there's one thing that 2023 will be memorable for in, in, in Europe, it will be the year that the political establishment started fighting back 
against uh, the EU's climate agenda. Because I was going to mention simple. this. Yeah. Because it, it's very much been this year hasn't been a positive year for climate. Because I think every year previously we're like, oh, we're getting new agreements on climate deals. We're, we're progressing forward in certain ways. But we've seen here a bit of that backlash. We, we, and when I mean we, I mean humanity, not Europe, China, US. Humanity. We are not implementing. I'm going to say anything. Take that with a pinch of salt. Um, because, unfortunately, the, the tragedy of the commons says that we can cut all our emissions Europe can tomorrow be net zero, it still won't be uh, enough because that's not how climate works. China and the US and India and, and Russia and everybody else could be doing whatever, whatever they want. Um, and then we tell ourselves that we are trying to, uh, uh, to fight uh, climate change, and we are. But you can't fight this battle alone. It's, uh, it's just not possible. Add to that the fact that the Russian-Ukraine war um, as well as other regional conflicts, uh, also here I'm going to mention Azerbaijan, are exacerbating um, the, the supply, number one, mm -hmm. the, the cost, number two, also you have OPEC uh, mm -hmm. um, that essentially is, uh, is profiteering of, uh, off of pe people's misery when it comes to climate and uh, uh, to energy, sorry, not to climate. Uh, but I, I look at this together because you don't have climate uh, action without without energy. And the truth is that the war taught us, like Joao said, a very valuable lesson that <laughs> at the end of the day, people want their houses warm. People want to be able to cook. People want to be able to have warm water. People want to be able to uh, uh, to power the, the companies that are bringing them literally everything. And I mean everything. And now we, we are very much realizing that, well, if we're going to shoot ourselves in the leg, we're going to lose that competitiveness that we have in so many industries, like the automotive, um, um, aerospace, and we're also shooting ourselves in the other leg in <laughs> industries where um, where th th they're not still uh, to the extent that they can be global conglom conglomerates or competitive on a global scale, but which we are working towards getting there. And at the end of the day, um, I, I unfortunately there must be a balance at this time because um, yes, it's it's a very very di difficult difficult dilemma between okay making the climate adoption now, but at the same time everybody needs to do it. So what I'm understanding, there's a bit of a darker story on climate this year, as I aptly chose this picture about about more of that skepticism, more of the denial, coupled with that you know that need for action. It's a potent story. Where does it, because I know you had this climate energy topic a bit higher, and, and we should rush for this a bit more a quickly. Should it be above digital regulation? A bit, a bit, hi a bit higher is an understatement. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 place, I place economy and climate on the top because the two things are, are completely intertwined. Because the reality is, if climate is faltering or, or, or losing trash traction, it's because people are giving, or governments are giving priority to economy, to actual practical needs, mm -hmm. you know? And uh, for instance, Nikos mentioned something that I, th I think is very illustrative of the situation. He, he spoke about the automotive industry. It's pretty much about, about climate as it is about e economy. Mm -hmm. And what is happening nowadays? 
For us to push for a green agenda in the automotive industry, we have a lot of we have the legislation like the Euro Seven and all of that. Uh, but we we don't control the supply chains. We 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 don't control the semiconductors and don't you, don't you control and we don't control the raw materials necessary to to make, for instance, the batteries. And where do they come from? Who controls them? China mostly. Well, and nowadays they are completely flooding our market, our automotive market with cars that we suspect or the industry is suspecting that they are being, um, their cost is being dumped. So basically they are, they are subsidizing their, not only they control the supply chains, but they are subsidizing the production of their cars and injecting to our market, which will mean that we are losing competitiveness. Our companies are losing competitiveness. You know, so this is climate and energy is pretty much an economic issue. They are completely intertwined. Now, now that you are mentioning, Wait, and, and since you, 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 since you merged... You segue now to the immediate next topic, and it's quite obvious. Yeah, but before we do, we're placing climate and energy at six tentatively and moving right into... Yes. <laughs> no, I, I would, I would you, you made a question, you asked if we, if we would place it like uh, digital regulation or climate and energy in fifth. I would switch them as well. I would switch them. I'll let you guys take the wheel on this because I am the host with no opinions. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> okay, uh, China and the world. Let, let's do a quick rant. We have like ten minutes left, so we should kind of kneel through let's this. Let's do like one minute. Yeah, I want John to start. You want me to start? Let's do one minute. I want John to start. Give a quick few uh, words. No, 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 no. You no, no, no. I think. Um, be concise, huh? No, I will. I will try to be concise. <laughs> what so you mean? You have been the guy that's been talking all. Uh, so, um, China, China in the world. Um, it's it's no secret. We have been discussing this a lot. How much China has become important uh, in the, as a world actor. Um, in many ways, it's more than a regional power. It's a worldwide power for the power that he can project and influence that he can take, not only in our economies, but also in the way that it controls places that EU, EU countries used to formally control or, or have influence over. So China nowadays, by, by the fact that they are capable of exerting such an influence, especially in controlling supply chains and raw materials, is something that leads us, and you remember very well the discussion, of what relationship we want to have, we, the West in general, want to have with China. That decoupling and detaching thing, I'm not going to enter into that. <laughs> but the thing is, do how much we want to be linked with China? Yeah. How far do we want to take globalization? Do we need to take a different approach in a more... Bringing like, bringing like, trying to have more of an autonomous approach within the European economy, promote even further the integration of the single market, try to have a different approach, and this is very important in a way that we do agreements with other states, especially um, states in Africa that have a lot of natural resources that we need for our own uh, digital, digital and green transition. Yeah, and on that note, we've seen a bunch of milestones in the last year because of this, you know, foreign investment screening uh, mechanism. We've seen uh, the Economic Security Act. We've seen more discussion of the CHIPS Act. And I, I've heard about a bunch of skepticism about even the uh, utilization even talking about that. 
And of course, it was almost preluded or capped off, depending on how you look at it, by Macron's and von der Leyen's overlapping little visit to China, which took home, I think, a few really different messagings. So I, I think 7th is a nice place, because you graciously gave up your time to speak on this. Um, or are you taking that back? I Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to, to move on, and I think... Uh, Wrap it all up, yeah. I, I agree with, with what Joao said. I, I'm just going to say that uh, about uh, about China, and we need to be very careful what parameters and what factors we use uh, when we consider and an analyze our relationship. Is it more economic or is it more human rights yeah. and geopolitics? But then I think, you know what? We forget that 2023 was the year that uh, we almost had a coup in Russia. Yes, because <laughs> I, I had this box of Russia's internal stability, which does relate to China, but given all of China's new investments and, you know, you know, the web is closing in around Russia with the <coughs> Chinese connection, which I think is kind of, you know, well-deserved. Uh, well but uh, I will say, I will give my top news-consumed moment in 2023 to the Pergozin coup. I, I was glued to yeah. Twitter for an entire day. I was glued to, like, all these pages I follow on yeah. Instagram and on, uh, what's that other uh, uh, social media that has... Never mind. I don't remember. Uh, but 26, yeah. you said you were? Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Um, yes, I, I agree that uh, kind of like uh, the White House said uh, about Putin when he essentially, let's say, defeated the coup and, and killed uh, Prigozhin. Well, no, so sorry, sorry. The, the, the plane, there was an engine failure. Yeah, it was an unsuspecting crash. No, nobody could have seen it coming. It was, know? or yes, yeah. I, I, I'm not sure at this point. But um, I will say that stronger in the short term, weaker in the long term. First of all, you can just see the people that Putin is uh, uh, hanging out with geopolitically. His buddies have become Iran and uh, the DPRK, uh, Kim Jong-un. If, if those are the kind of friends that you want to have um, uh, geopolitically, that's certainly your prerogative. At the same time, uh, it's very important that we put Russia below China because Putin has selected with the fact that he's chosen a very path-dependent route down the fact that he's not willing to relent on, on Ukraine. Um, it is making it very clear that essentially there is a very, very real possibility um, and I think very high possibility that uh, Russia becomes uh, uh, essentially an oligarchy of, uh, of China yep. when they start using their money to... Uh, I definitely agree, and I think that's going to be really fascinating to see come for years. But before we put this on the list, and I'm sure I'm not entirely aligned, this is bigger than the other stories mm -hmm. we've list. And I want to pull a few attention to a few other ones in the last two slots for the last few minutes we have. NATO enlargement, I thought was a huge theme this year. It might not look like on the surface, but NATO did expand, and it will expand again with uh, Sweden joining next well, year. Hopefully. Let's call it enlarge. We're, we're waiting, right? Yes, yes. Certain and countries uh, <laughs> take very thorough democratic but they, processes. They, they did, uh, you know, eventually prove. But regardless, yeah. moving on to maybe another thing we should touch on, the U.S. Republicans. Actually, I, I want an, another one, and I left it for last because I want to, to talk about it. No, Russia, we keep... No, no, let, no, no let, let's, let, let, let's quickly uh, go Because I don't, I don't agree that it should be there. Yeah, because I think there's a few <sighs> other ones, like I wanted to pull out yeah. as well, Africa's coups or coups in general, which had a great impact as well, maybe from the situation in Russia, which we were implicitly supported a lot of time. Um, maybe the EU elections prelude, which we've hinted at, maybe mm -hmm. it should be on here as well, the merry-go-round. 
Ukraine reconstruction, personally, I think, at least in my work, it's been something that I've been looking at a lot. So maybe it's been more on my mind. And I guess the U.S. You know, Republican uh, Party and the whole elections coming up. Of these themes, what are we including here? Does Russia deserve to be here? Zhao, I give you the word. In, my, in my opinion, no. For the next, I'm going to make it shorter. Uh, for, the next, for the last two spots, I would place... Uh, yo, yo, she can't get both. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'll, I'll give you the two, yeah. and I'll give you the yeah, two, and then we'll discuss. Yeah, we so don't have much time. I, I would place, like, um, in uh, eight, I would place the African coups. Yeah, tentatively. And uh, I would place in ninth the NATO enlargement. Okay. Personally, I would be okay with that. What's your argument? So, um, I, I don't mind if it's tenth, uh, but I, I would put Nagorno-Karabakh uh, conflict um, and and I want to make a broader argument here. I, I agree with Africa coups and uh, NATO enlargement and generally the ongoing pushback in democracy in Africa, not just coup d'etat um, but th the most dangerous time for regional conflicts is when people are not looking. For instance, Russia and, U and Ukraine uh, Israel and Palestine and God knows whatever other and Kosovo uh, what, whatever other conflict is, is brewing. Um, and, and this is where I have to pay homage to the fact that I'm Greek. Uh, this is what, what I fear, for instance, as, uh, as just a, a young Greek person, that w when things really start getting dangerous geopolitically, autocrats, demagogues, and dictators look for that easy win, that lightning offensive, kind of like uh, Azerbaijan did in Nagorno-Karabakh because if they did a special three-day military operation quote-unquote yeah. because that's what Russia tried to do except it completely backfired and exploded in their faces now this what happened in, uh, in Nagorno-Karabakh it continues to be prevalent why? because as soon as the Israel-Palestine uh, sorry Israel-Hamas conflict uh, began we had um Azerbaijan making demands that they want Armenia to cede more territory. They want to, to connect their, their newly acquired territories. And here we see the problem of not just Taiwan, but also Greece, Cyprus, um, and a million other small micro-conflicts that are brewing and ongoing. Um, I mean... Yeah, so, so I, I'd like that argument. And I think that African coups kind of speaks a bit to that. I know it doesn't encompass the encompass the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, but I personally I felt like this is a bit more politically salient, and it gives a bit more homage to a part of the world we don't speak about Poli enough. Politically and economically, the Africa coups. Yes. So Nic as uh, you know, a, another philosopher akin to your Greek ancestors once said, "You've been overruled." <laughs> yeah. Should we sure. keep NATO enlargement on here as well? Or are there any final, is, are we happy with this final list of 2023? I personally will take it. I know there'll be some eyebrows that we include migration over the right-wing wave. I would remove competitiveness and put the elections. Jao, um, thoughts? I am willing to do it because there has been in our own lists beforehand, and paying homage to Julian, he also had elections in there. My, my interpretation, I, I wouldn't change it now because the interpretation that I made in the beginning was by joining, by combining all of those things into the prelude of the elections. Because what if we take, if we strip away the political debate or, or, and the movements that are behind, 
what is actually left for the for the prelude. Nothing well, that much. F- for me, the preludes. You think about it too broadly, though. Prelude is just the whole media attention being paid to who's going to step up again. But again, you don't yeah. see that. You don't see that much. Whereas I honestly believe that European competitiveness is something that is very. It should remain in the agenda, and it was in the agenda this year, a lot. Yeah, it's true. First half of the year. Okay. I, I think this dom. Um, I would say I would hazard to say it might have dominated the agenda more than this did, more substantially. Okay. Also, speaking mm-hmm. of dominating the agendas, this Qatari thing fell off a cliff. But uh, that's all I'm going <laughs> to say on that. <laughs> I'm not even going to touch that. Uh, are, are we? Are, are our fetters not too ruffled by this conversation? Do we think that we have something we are willing to put, you know, the brubble stamp on, which we already have? But uh, Slava Ukraina, long live Europe, yeah. and. I can live with the list. Any final reflections, Joe? Pretty much comfortable with the list as we came up. I don't know if uh, Julian will actually agree, but actually <laughs> I'm curious. Let's let's go down and see what he put and see how much he got right. Right, I mean, how much... So he got one, he got two. I well, let's just describe it for the listeners because he, he kind of hinted at the same top three except in different orders because he had right-wing wave, which I consider a bit synonymous migration. Inflation cost of living as two and three. Russia, Ukraine is one. So, yeah. AI Act, which we sort of renamed into uh, digital regulation. Exactly. Israel-Hamas conflict. The Inflation Reduction Act, which we also renamed to European competitiveness. So, he did have the Polish elections, uh, which we did not. Touch upon. Uh, Despite, you know, Donald Tusk allegedly being the most influential man in Europe, if you saw the political headlines which I don't know if I agree with, but going on. <laughs> he, he also had the 2024 EU election prelude, U, uh, U, Ukrainian reconstruction, and at the last spot, uh, Croatia joining the Euro and the Schengen. Do we think Croatia should be given some more applause? Because this is somewhat of a European success story, no? Surely. Uh, no, should yes, we have yes, yes, applause yes. the story in our top few? Because um, again, it's, it's very bleak like it was last year. <laughs> uh, but was it the top 10 story? Honestly, yeah, yeah, but I don't. I, I, th- yeah, I think, I think, m- much more to them, them, but not th- there's one thing that, I, although, if we still have a little bit of time, that I would like to I see. Don't think we do, do we? No, because <laughs> how much, how much does our top, um, top ten this year compares with the, the last years? Yeah, let, let, let's let's give it a glance. Let me. Okay, sh- should we quickly say what it was? Yeah, well, we, we looked over in the beginning uh, a second ago, but so I, I think we need to be wrapping up right now. Okay. Um, but let, let's discuss that on the way out. Leave in the comments below. I'll flash on the screen at the end. And let us say goodbye. Thank you for coming out, Nicholas, Zhao. And I'm hoping that you'll like, subscribe, and do all the good stuff. See you next time. See you guys.